Hello, everyone. My name is Jason. Hi, my name is Jess. Welcome to today's discussion, where we, as English students, are here to present our topic of the dystopian bush for this year's MQ Students Writers Festival. So, before we start talking about the two books we have today, let's talk about what we mean by the dystopian bush fiction. How would you describe the dystopian bush as a genre? Well, dystopian bush is a genre used by many forms of media that often portrays a society or environment, usually in the near future, that is characterized by aspects that go against the ethics people usually hold. These aspects usually include poverty, loss of individualism, environmental degradation, and an excessively controlling government. When people mention bush literature, they are often referring to poems or stories that convey what it is like to experience the scenery of the bush and the life that dwells within it in the context of the Australian outback. By doing so, stories that explore the bush often accurately capture the freedom and organic nature the Australian outdoors is best known for. Thus, although it's arguably quite the niche genre, the dystopian bush in literature often borrows aspects from each of its respective genres, where it paints an unforgiving, dangerous, and restrictive environment all the while contrasting this with the liberating and calming feelings associated with the bush in the Australian outback. Yes, definitely. The bush itself is a big part of Australian culture in and of itself. Some of Australia's most successful films and public figures embody the pride and nationalism Australians feel from the bush. For example, Crocodile Dundee and Steve Irwin represent strong Aussie blokes that value mateship and hard work. The representation of the bush is a source of national pride for many even thought of as the real Australia, opposed to the city. The Bushman bloke even being present in television ads by Tourism Australia at that parody, Crocodile Dundee. This blokey Australian man goes hand in hand, although more extreme, with the theories of one of Australia's most famous and most critiqued historians, Russell Ward, in his book, The Australian Legend, about nationalism and the transition from being British to being Australian. Ward had a view now considered radical that championed the rural and working class culture and considered the typical Australian to be a masculine man, rough, often drunk, swearing, gambling, and often racist and sexist. Yes, Crocodile Dundee and Steve Owen are both good examples of the classic Australian bloke. Now that we've gone over the genre itself, today we'll be talking about the dystopian bush in Claire Zorn's When We Invisible and John Marston's To Tomorrow When the War Began. Okay, picture this. You just escaped a nuclear winter in Sydney where everybody is starving. There is no food, no electricity and no petrol. Your car is packed to the brim with as much food as you could manage to find. A gun sits on the floor that you really hope you don't have to use again. You hear of a place where survivors have food, water and safety. You have to reach this paradise. This is the reality for Lucy, Finn and Max in Claire Zones when we are invisible. Mm, sounds intriguing. As well as being an established author within the Australian literary sphere who has won the Children's Book Council of Australia Book of the Year Older Readers Award twice, Claire Zorn has proven her ability to effectively capture the essence of the turmoil and pleasures exhibited by young adults to this day. Many have found her works to be insightful and provocative while exploring the psyches of vulnerable and relatable characters. Yeah, she explores feminism, individual autonomy, power dynamics and mental health in the context of a dystopian world set here in Sydney through the story of three teenagers who escape the city during a nuclear winter and travel to a, a compound made up of survivors. 
The book follows Finn and his younger brother Max and Lucy, who went on one date with Finn before the nuclear disaster. After escaping Sydney for a better chance of surviving, Lucy feels as though this new place, Wattlewood, is not so safe after all. She struggles to show Finn that the leader Jackson is not all he seems to be and fights for her own freedom in Jackson's authoritarian police-like state. Jackson is the main antagonist of the story and is in charge of Waterwood when Lucy, Finn and Max arrive. He is manipulative towards his girlfriend Esther and has the whole camp convinced he is looking out for them, except Lucy. Rahel and Esther are also key characters. Rahel is a camp doctor who is being threatened by Jackson for the safety of her children and Esther is the girlfriend Lucy catches Jackson being abusive towards. Both of these characters facilitate Lucy's goal to get rid of Jackson. This is the second book in the series, although it can stand alone. Interestingly enough, as mentioned by Braithwaite in her depiction of the dystopian bush genre, Australia's past dealings with nuclear energy, as well as its remote geographical setting and environment in comparison to the, wet, to the rest of the world, provides a fresh perspective towards the dystopian genre. The dystopian bush is quite prominent in the story as the group escapes from the city to the bush for a better chance of survival. How do you think Zorn represents the bush in the text? In the context of a dystopian nuclear winter scenario, the bush at times would be depicted as a cold and unforgiving patch of wilderness where the characters struggle to survive. This is the case in some parts of the novel during Lucy's hunting trips as anxiety begins to build up regarding the possible threats that lie in wait to attack their party. Okay, so would you say the bush is purely negative in the story then? Well, interestingly enough, the bush is also a form of escape for Lucy as she does find solace in the fact that it has survived and seems relatively unaffected since the start of the nuclear disaster, unlike society as well as reminding her of her sister and way of life back when she was younger, living in the country. The fact that it's one of the only few constants in her ever-changing life is a source of comfort for her. Yes, definitely. The bush does seem more positive for Lucy, as she sees it as an escape from the rigid structure and surveillance of the compound, as well as an escape from Jackson. And she gets to ride Frosty on their hunting trips. She talks about feeling desperate to get out of the place. Even though those hunting trips really weren't very successful for her in the beginning, for example, when she was unable to kill the kangaroo they were hunting and threw up in a bush, Lucy also views riding her horse as a valuable skill within the camp for survivors, especially with the constant threats of being kicked out if she's not useful enough. This is clear when she's first asked to demonstrate her riding skills and gets back on Frosty despite a bad fall and injury in order to prove herself capable. Well, um, when I was reading the book, I found the compound that was initially depicted to be a safe haven for remaining survivors end up developing the same characteristics to that of a society under a police state-like institution. It's completely understandable that Lucy eventually seeks the opportunity to venture out into the bush once more. In a way, her horse Frosty acts as a form of coping mechanism for Lucy, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. She really does use Frosty as a prop for her own autonomy, it seems. Lucy as a character is being treated unfairly because she's a woman, which comes across clearly in the first-person style and is made more high-stakes by the dystopian setting. She mentions feeling the weight of societal pressure and expectations, as well as the fear she felt being a woman even before the nuclear winter, such as walking alone at night or being sexually assaulted. These are very relatable fears for young women reading the novel. She believes that many women, including herself, 
love horses because they're powerful animals that can outrun any man. Yes, and I think this really appeals to the young adult audience, especially the young women reading the text who have similar fears and feel societal pressure in their own lives. Nowadays, more than ever, it's important that those in the younger generation feel represented to, in the media that they consume and be taught that it's all right to be themselves and to stand up for themselves when needed. Although for most of the book, Lucy feels completely powerless next to Jackson, she manages to convince Esther and Rahel eventually that Jackson is manipulating everyone in the compound and she escapes to bring back proof. She also really advocates for the woman and child who are desperate for help, but Jackson refused to allow inside, even when she is being constantly intimidated by Jackson to keep quiet. Exactly. And Jackson's actions toward Lucy as well can be an example of how some young women may feel but are unable to express. Lucy talks about Jackson using his eyes to intimidate her and Rahel, and she finds out he's abusing and manipulating Esther under the guise of wanting to protect the camp. I think Jackson's use of his physical size to intimidate Lucy also contributes to the safety she feels when she is with her horse, Frosty. Even Jackson does not seem dangerous when she's with Frosty. Lucy even imagines escaping with Frosty and never coming back. She thinks, at the far end of the clearing, I slow him to a walk and pat his neck. But in my mind, we keep going. We gallop on. We jump the gates of the camp and we run away. The power dynamic seems even more extreme in such a small setting where they will run into each other often. Mental health is also a continuous theme throughout the novel. Absolutely. How do you think this is represented through Lucy in the text? I think one way in which Zorn was able to tackle the concept of mental health was how she introduced the metaphor of the white, empty, compartmentalised room that Lucy had created in her head. Throughout key moments of the story, she refers back to that echo chamber in her head where she's reminded of past events that have had a significant impact on her. For example, she says, my head is a white room full of evenly proportioned white boxes that I keep things in. The dead bodies at the gates of Sydney, the lines on my mother's palms, plans I had, the songs I've written, my sister. Mm, exactly. Her sister Penelope especially is a sensitive topic that she's constantly being reminded of where her thoughts regarding her relationship are neatly stacked upon the highest level of boxes. By compartmentalizing these memories, I feel like she's very protective of her past, as doing otherwise may lead to her changing as a person, as those past events really do define who she is as of now, which isn't something I think that she wants to lose. Yeah, I agree. Penelope does seem to come up often in Lucy's thoughts. Even at the beginning of the novel, when they had just arrived at Waterwood, and Max is refusing to eat after Noel's death. Lucy is reminded of Penelope and her struggle with an eating disorder before the nuclear winter. This then leads to thinking about her family and whether or not they are alive. That is right. Finn is trying to convince Max to eat, and his refusal pulls Lucy back to the hospital, where Penelope was suffering with her eating disorder to the point where she was screamed at Lucy over a Mars bar. She acts indifferent to Max's suffering as though there is no hope for him since there was no hope for her sister. Yeah, she does really seem to spend a lot of time thinking about her past. Your point there also reminds me of the way that she has continuous flashbacks to hitting Stavos, who was the corner shop owner back in the area of the Blue Mountains they lived before the disaster, with a cricket bat when he was, attending, when he was attacking Finn at the supermarket. The cricket bat cracks into Stavos' bald head like a spoon into an eggshell. Blood that I never saw in reality pours from the hole. 
Lucy is clearly traumatised from having to hit Savas with the bat and even hallucinates blood pouring from where she hit him. Mm, exactly. Yeah, she does struggle with this particular incident quite a bit. Rahel takes on a more supportive motherly type figure, though, which comes across when the two women are gardening together. Rahel allows Lucy to talk about her feelings without pressure. She reassures Lucy that nothing was her fault and that it is okay to be upset about the incident. Yeah, Rahel is definitely an important character. I think for younger readers as well, she represents a glimmer of hope for the future when the world gets back to normal. A glimmer of hope, which actually is also present in John Marsden's Tomorrow When the War Began. John Marsden's Tomorrow When the War Began also follows a group of teenagers navigating the aftermath of a disaster. The Tomorrow When the War Began takes the readers into the minds of a group of teenagers as they are unknowingly caught in the midst of a rapid takeover of their hometown by a mysterious and mighty foreign military force. Despite being left with barely any resources, nor knowledge of the situation to work with, Ellie, along with her friends Homer, Lee, Kevin, Corey, Fiona, and Robin, make do in order to rage their own rebellion against their cloaked oppressors to save those they love and bring back order to this small town and their country. I would say this is reminiscent of his previous works in young adult fiction, right? Yeah, for sure. John Marston has won many, many awards, including the Lloyd O'Neill Award in 2006 for his work in the young adult genre, something only a handful of people win per year. He's also written a range of nonfiction books is one, and is one of Australia's most prolific authors, with many commenting on his works as heartwarming, inclusive, as well as immersive to audiences of all ages worldwide. What do you think of the representation of the bush in Tomorrow When the War Began? Well, first of all, Tomorrow When the War Began takes on what seems to me like a Russell Ward-esque nationalism, where the characters rely on their close relationship with the bush and the skills that they have developed growing up on a rural farm. Some critics of Marsden also say the emphasis on white nationalism does to an extent appropriate Aboriginal culture and the spiritual connection to the land. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a good point, especially what we were talking about before with the Australian identity and nationalism. Um, in addition to that, I would say that the bush is probably even more central to the narrative in this novel compared to Claire Zorn's When We Are Invisible. Bush takes on a supportive and comforting role, actually, which is quite contrary to perhaps some expectations that readers might have, that the landscape can be quite harsh and unforgiving, like it often is in dystopian genre. Mm, I completely agree with that. In comparison to how the Bush is portrayed in Zorn's novel, however, I thought both representations do share common ground in the fact that they are a form of escape in one way or another for the protagonist to find solace in and feel protected by. It is quite strange that they chose this area as their base of operations, right? Yeah, I agree. I think um, internationally, Australia kind of has a reputation for like dangerous wildlife and, you know, a, quite a harsh bush. But it seems quite ironic how at first the group refers to the bush themselves as hell. And later on, it's actually a paradise and the only place they're truly safe from the invaders. Ellie actually says, it suddenly seemed so obvious that if we had a future, it would be in hell. And we began to realise that there might still be a life for us. People were keeping each other prisoner, hurting each other, killing each other, but we'd retreated to the paradise of hell. You can see the impact that these events are having on the character's psychological well-being as well, right? At this point in the novel. 
Yes, uh, as we previously mentioned, mental health is a prominent theme as well, and it is explored a lot through character-driven novels such as this one. In the t- context of a foreign power suddenly invading your country, it would catch anyone off guard. As a result, all of the characters have experienced some form of distress and trauma. Like Lucy, Ellie is unable to forgive herself, nor able to justify the actions or decisions she has been forced to make for the well-being of others. This has had a severe toll on her mental well-being throughout the remainder of the book. But, I mean, it does seem like Ellie's taking the brunt of it now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, having the story from Ellie's perspective represents a struggle with dealing with the traumatic events that she's been forced to endure. It's really visible, I think, at the start of the book when Ellie, Corey and Kevin are running away from the guards and left with no option but to blow them up with a pencil tank. Ellie thinks, I hoped that the faster and quicker we ran, the screams would fade, but that didn't seem to be happening. I didn't know if I was hearing them with my ears or in my mind as well. Not only is Ellie struggling to process her actions and what they cause, but she, along with the rest of the group, don't even know if their family members are alive or dead or even injured. Even when they do discover that most of the town is being held hostage in the showground area, they can't really do much to help. Yeah, I agree. Ellie immediately struggles to accept the reality of her actions, even when she is safe again. I mean, she also struggles to write down what happened and reveals that the only way she was able to record that her quick thinking saved herself and two of her friends but killed three people was by remaining detached as if from the position of an outsider or as a coping mechanism. Why do you think recording these difficult events was so important for the group? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I would say that the recording of the events was definitely very important to the group. The novel starts with a diary format that's really popular in YA fiction that lets Ellie speak directly to the reader and explain why she's writing. The main reason the group has decided to record the events is because they want to be remembered. And they want to prove all the things that they've done have made a difference. In fact, I think being forgotten after all the, su- all the suffering they experience seems to be their worst fear. Ellie writes, None of us want to end up as a pile of dead white bones, unnoticed, unknown, and worst of all, with no one knowing or appreciating the risk we've run. I think this desire to be remembered appeals to most readers, actually, especially young readers who aspire to make a difference in the world. Mm, interesting observation. I mean, young adult does seem to have a way of dealing with a lot of the same issues young adults face growing up in a much more dire and high-stakes way within the text. One of these issues that is explored in Tomorrow When the War Began is romantic relationships and friendship. What do you think? Yeah, the inclusion of romance and intimate relationships in the young adult fiction genre, dystopian young adult in particular, is really common. Relationships as well as friendships are often among the most important things going on in the lives of young adults reading the novel, in my opinion. Not only this, but in terms of entertainment, romance and the struggles it entails like, does that person feel the same way or why do I have feelings for two different people in Ellie's case? And the eventual realisation she only saw Homer as a friend can be very interesting. I also think the small amounts of Ellie exploring sex and sexuality would cause a young adult reader to be drawn into the story. Mm, I agree. Even though some say that the romance and forming a relationship would be one of the last things on anyone's mind during a global or nationwide crisis, I would argue that it is an essential addition in order to further character development in a narrative. For example, Lucy and Ellie have both faced their fair share of adversity throughout their journey, but both of them have had their partners to rely on throughout. 
someone to share their triumphs as well as a reliable shoulder to lean on when they feel lost or upset. Yeah, definitely. Um, romance is definitely common in the young adult genre. Do you see Tomorrow When the War Began exploring any other common topics in young adult fiction? Mm, yes, it definitely does. The characters in Tomorrow When the War Began are about the same age as Lucy, I think, and Finn in When We Are Invisible, and agency and standing up to strict authoritarian regimes are common themes in both the texts. How do you think Finn and Lucy exhibit a form of agency in the text in comparison to Ellie and her friends? Well, first talking about Finn and Lucy, um, in the start of that novel, it was clear that they made their own decision regarding leaving Sydney to seek sanctuary at Waterwood, despite knowing next to nothing about what the situation there was like, apart from a recommendation by their teacher. They were demonstrating their ability to be assertive and make the decisions they needed to make for survival. The fact that they also had to look out for Max as well prompted the two of them to take the risk and leave Sydney for a better hope of surviving. This happens again when Lucy, Rahel and Esther realise the dangers of Jackson and his power trip and escape Waterwood to find Esther's Esther's father and return with a plan to overthrow him. Also, later on during the events that took place within the compound, Lucy was the main catalyst behind exposing Jackson's wrongdoings to the rest of the community, taking it upon herself to be the first to speak up with an agency to do what's right for her fellow survivors. Did you see any similar aspects being presented in Tomorrow When the War Began? Yeah, I definitely did. Um, Although Homer seems to make a lot of the the group decisions in the text, the entire group does stand up against the soldiers holding their family and friends captive at the showground. While Lucy and Finn fight the tight surveillance that they themselves are under at Waterwood, Ellie and her friends attempt to break the regime being enforced over others by causing an explosion and destroying the bridge that the soldiers use for their supplies. Mm, yes, when Ellie writes, I think we all felt that we should do something if only because the idea of doing nothing seems so appalling that we couldn't even contemplate it. The, the group decided that since they had the ability to do something to help, or at least they had to try. What do you think these two novels have in common in terms of interpretation for young adult readers? Well, I think that both novels offer, offer an opportunity for self-reflection, not just for young, for young adult audience, but actually any reader at all. By having such a close alignment with the protagonists of both stories, the reader can experience reflection, whether consciously or subconsciously, and apply some of the themes of the book, like friendship and standing up for what they believe in their own lives. Although both texts offer two very different representations of the Australian bush in dystopian fiction, The landscape is quite integral in both stories. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Even though Claire Zorn released her book almost 30 years after Marsden's bestseller, I do agree that the sentiments and ideas represented in the characters of each text still remain just as relevant to this day with younger audiences, the ability to inspire hope and action to fight for their future. That's a good point. Yeah, definitely. Well, all right, that's the end of our discussion today. Thank you so much for listening to our interpretations of the dystopian bush in John Marsden's Tomorrow When the War Began and Claire Zorn's When We Are Invisible. And tune in to From the Lighthouse for more literary conversations. Goodbye. Goodbye.